You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and I'm happy to welcome back to our studios Jennifer Robson, internationally best-selling author of Somewhere in France, and the linked novel, After the War is Over. And she's here today to talk about her new novel, Moonlight Over Paris. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. Now, the novel just published. When did it publish? Remind me of the pub date. It was January 19th. Perfect. And the reception, I've read a lot of very strong reviews. It it has been lovely. It has been lovely. I mean, you 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 hold your breath. You uh, you you feel fairly confident in that. You know, if you have your wonderful editor has said it's good, and friends and family have read it and say they like it, but until it's out in the world at large, you you really have no idea how people will respond to it, and they've responded very warmly. My my favorite are the emails uh, sent to me at three in the morning saying, "I just finished the book. Oh. I've been up all night." <laughs> Yeah. And I, I, you know, I couldn't put it down. That, that Those are the absolute best. Really? What more could you ask for? Really? They're nothing, nothing. And then when they tell me they had to make cups of tea while they were while they were reading it because my novels make them think of tea, that's, that's even better. All right. So please give us the background. Tell us the setting mm-hmm. and the characters and sort of the main, the main thrust of the, the novel. So this book, uh, my previous books, uh, you know, Somewhere in France took place during the Great War, uh, after the war's over, took place in the years right after the war. And Moonlight Over Paris moves uh, ahead a little bit in time to the very early 1920s. Uh, and the heroine is a minor character from the first two books, Lady Helena. Uh, we, she thinks of herself just as Helena, or Ellie, actually, in the book. And uh, she's her life has been pretty gray uh, since the time of the war. Um, and without giving too much away about the earlier books, uh, she finds herself alone and really on the fringes of high society in London and that she's firmly on the shelf, which was still a thing in those days. Yeah. And uh, she decides she has to, she's recovered from a near-death illness. Um, she decides she has to make a change in her life, that she has to live. She can't go on as she has been doing for years and years, uh, trailing around after her mother. And so uh, she accepts her aunt's invitation. She's a lovely, very eccentric aunt who lives in Paris. She accepts her aunt's invitation to go to Paris, uh, spend a year there, um, and learn how to become an artist properly. She's a self-taught artist, but she's never had any formal training. And she thinks maybe she might have some small amount of talent, but she needs to know. She needs to submit herself to the teachings of a professional. And um, so she goes to France. She actually begins her, her year in France uh, by spending the summer in Antibes on the Côte d'Azur. When she's there, she meets um, some of uh, some of the figures who uh, are actual true historical figures. Right. So that is, so is this the house? Is this Gerald and Sarah Murphy? Yes, house? it is exactly. It's Gerald and Sarah Murphy who had the Villa America, uh, which has become famed as this 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 beautiful oasis of gentility and um, artistic. Um, delights and and everyone who's everyone anyone in uh, you know in Paris in the 1920s ended up visiting sort of ended up there they ended yeah. up there and so Helena is an old friend of 
uh, of Sarah's, and it's through that connection that she is introduced to to life at the fringes of the lost generation. She's certainly not one of the movers and shakers, uh, but through her eyes we get to meet some of those people. Um, and we also uh, meet Sam, who is an American journalist working for the foreign edition of the Chicago Tribune, uh, the Paris edition it was called. And uh, he also offers uh, her a kind of a new way of looking at the world that, that she'd never really considered before. Uh, yeah. So everything is new for her in this year. And yeah. it's all about, it's an awakening of sorts, you know, coming at the very end of her 30s, uh, when she had almost become resigned to her life just being uh, being a meh, for the lack yeah. of a better word. and um, But, you know, a year in Paris, how can it possibly be medium uh, or meh? It, it changes her in every way possible. Yeah. So tell us about your research for this book, because one of the things that I thought was interesting was Sam and his newspaper writing mm-hmm. and, and, and imagining, you know, how newspapers were structured at that time, how many there were and, mm. you know, what their influence was, because it's that's all completely changed. It has. And so I drew upon my inspiration for the character of Sam uh, to a certain degree, not his personality, but his experiences and so on as a newspaperman of that time is, is my own grandfather who was a journalist a little bit later uh, through the the uh, late 1920s until the late 1940s. He was a newspaperman in Vancouver in Canada. And uh, and certainly family lore has told us of some of the stories of uh, the, you know, the goings-on in the newsroom. Uh, but what it was like to put out a daily paper. Right. And, uh, you know, this is a time when there's no technology uh, that, that we're familiar with today that could assist you with doing the hard work of... of chasing down a story. And furthermore, the people at the Paris edition were reliant on, uh, a lot of what they published was American news for expats living in Paris. So they had to rely upon things like telegrams that had been reduced down to their bare minimum uh, in terms of words uh, to conserve, uh, you know, on the costs of sending the telegrams. And so there was a a type of informal language called cableese, which they would send the the telegrams in. And um, uh, and just deciphering the cableese was, was a, a labor in, in, in and of itself, I have to say, when I was doing the research. Um, but it was really interesting just seeing how how the papers operated, how um, how they put the, the stories together on the fly, as it were. And, you know, the Paris edition was known in as the zaniest paper in the world. Okay. And it was a kind of place where um, there were reports of, of F. Scott Fitzgerald having rolled in the door, um, absolutely pickled uh, with drink, and um, proceeding to sit down and, and try and copy edit some stories, and then rolling back out the door again, even though he was never officially employed by the paper. And people would come and go, and it was it was there was there was quite a lot of mayhem there. But they also produced a really good paper. And funnily enough, even though the politics of the Chicago Tribune at the time were really quite a conservative and right-wing. Uh, the Paris edition, I think because nobody uh, back in the States was paying attention to it, was actually uh, quite avant-garde for the time. And they were publishing all sorts of stories about uh, the artistic uh, life uh, in Paris of, of, of um, avant-garde writers. And uh, that, that, you know, probably if it had been submitted for editorial approval back in the States, would, would never have seen the light of day. So Sam and... Helena or Nellie, they uh, they strike up a friendship and and it, and it evolves. But it's also interesting the the other friends that that Helena mm-hmm. makes. You know the the people that she goes to school with. Yeah. And so yeah. tell us a little bit about that. Well, 
you know, I, I, I firmly subscribe to the notion that as a writer, my, my books have to pass the Bechdel test and that the, the female character has to have friendships with women uh, that turn on, um, you know, actual uh, subjects that have nothing to do with a male romantic interest. And I, I'm really, really interested in women's friendships. Yeah. And so that's why I have to surround my heroines with, with the kind of friends I would like to have. Um, and so we have Mathilde. She's a shy and reserved person. She's a very talented artist. And you can just tell that there's something in her background uh, that has led to a great deal of grief. And we do find that yeah. out as she and Helena become friends. Um, there's Etienne, who is, is by far the most talented of the group. Um, and I've tried to portray him as somebody who, if he had been real, would, would be someone whose, whose paintings would be in we museums today. Yeah. But he's also gay, yeah. and he's gay at a time where it was extraordinarily difficult. And you know, anyone listening to this knows how difficult it was for people. Although in France at that time, the police tended to not really turn a blind eye, but they were they're somewhat more tolerant in France then uh, than they were in other countries at the time. It was probably marginally easier to be uh, a gay man or a lesbian in in Paris in. Uh, say the 1920s than it was in Britain, for example. Right. That being said, it, you you it was still a very difficult at times, and you could you could be set upon and beaten up, as happens to Etienne yeah. in the book. Um, and then there's also Daisy, Helena's American friend, who has a mysterious story of a, of a love lost during the war, which I actually later pick up and continue her story in. Uh, my contribution to Fall of Poppies, which is an anthology uh, that comes out in March. Oh, um, wonderful! Tell about the Great War. It's, oh, so tell us about that. Fall of Poppies. There's there's nine of us together working. Uh, uh, we we worked on separate stories with one theme, uh, a unifying theme, and that's to to talk about um, uh, the armistice at the very end of the Great War, November 11th, 1918. And so uh, in my story, I talk about uh, Daisy, uh, who's working actually at the Red Cross Studio for Portrait Masks in, in Paris at the time. It's very difficult to research. There's very little information extant. But um, an American sculptor called Anna Coleman Ladd set up the, the uh, studio in late 1918, uh, and she was motivated by the effort she'd seen in England uh, of people who were creating masks for men whose faces had been badly disfigured oh. in the war. And so she set up a smaller companion studio in Paris and made these masks that were nothing less than beautiful, beautiful works of art. And it was meant to allow a soldier whose face had been disfigured to, to have the dignity of walking about in public without people staring at him. Mm -hmm. And uh, very few of them exist today in the sense of something you can, you can look at in a museum because most of the masks it's believed, were, were buried, buried with the with soldiers them. when they died. Yeah. Uh, but there are a few, and the workmanship is just tremendous. And what, what material was it made it out It was of? a hammered, hammered, thin copper, at least at the Paris studio, that was then galvanized and then was coated with a very thin enamel. It would be fitted to the man's face, and it would be painted while he was wearing it so that uh, his skin tones would exactly match wow. the mask. Um, and I mean, many, many hours to make these masks. And it was a labor of love, nothing less than that. No no money was ever charged to the soldiers. It was primarily French soldiers who, who had the masks at that studio, but there were some Americans. And one of the Americans who, who I've created is a young man called Daniel, who who is Daisy's lost love. Um, so you know, I, I had to I had to make it somewhat romantic. When I created Daisy's character, I knew there was more to her. You've said that your interest in history is so, one of your interests in history is how 
we sort of stay the same. Mm-hmm. And how that I think you said that you, you you could just as well you know bump into a person from a different era today mm-hmm. and recognize them. Tell us about that as it relates to Moonlight over Paris. Like, where would you imagine some of these people today? Oh, I can I can completely imagine okay. them. I can see all of them. I can see I can see her aunt Agnes, um, just you know living the life as uh, as a lady of leisure. You know, no matter what era she lives in, um, and you know. The, but at the same time, some of them are very much of their time and place in terms of of you know Helena herself. Um, there are moments where I did worry. I thought, does she seem strong enough? Does she seem mm-hmm. Uh, take charge enough, and then, but to to ha- have made her more of a of a kind of a tough cookie, for lack of a better word, would have taken her out of yeah, taken of, her out of sync of yeah. sync with with the time in which she lived. And so it's very tempting to say, oh, she should have behaved like this. She should have been stronger in that moment, or she ought to have stood up to so and so. That's not natural to the character that I created, and and so it's frustrating sometimes when. I'll be in the middle of writing a book and uh, the characters will be behaving in a fashion that's true to the people I've created, but it's not necessarily a way that I admire or, yeah, or support, yeah. but I have to I have to continue with it because otherwise then they start feeling completely two-dimensional and fake. And if she had suddenly had uh, the great moment uh, early in the book of standing up to the, the tyrannical art teacher and telling him to... Uh, to to get lost, it it would have come out. It, that would be yeah, completely would foreign believable. to her character. Yeah. Uh, and so that so the strength that she finds by the end of the book is something that has to grow, and she has to develop. And it doesn't come to you overnight. I right. don't believe um, changes in one's character or personality. None of those things ever happen to people overnight. And it's tempting to um, ascribe those kind of changes to characters. You see that in movies all the time. Somebody just turns like that into a completely different person, but. In reality, I think people change slowly, and the changes may not um, be earth-shattering, but they're still significant in terms of how they affect the people and their lives going forward. And and that is something that was true in 1925, and right. it's true today. Right. So now, was there anything different in writing this book? The first time I used uh, a significant number of characters who who are were true life characters, mm. uh, which yeah. was daunting. In my second book, I did include uh, Eleanor Rathbone, who was was a real life character, and she was a minor figure in the book, although one for whom I have the, just the greatest greatest admiration. And uh, and so I, I read and read and researched about the people who's who I included, uh, such as Gertrude Stein, uh, Ernest and Hadley Hemingway. Um, uh, uh, Gerald and Sarah, of course. But, you know, I wanted to be fair to them. Mm -hmm. And I also really wanted to get at, since they were being seen exclusively through Helena's eyes in the book, I had to get as close as I could to what her perception of them would have been in 1925. So you have to set yeah. aside yeah, everything. F. Scott Fitzgerald, yeah, the genius, yeah. uh, and the, the tortured genius who died young. That's that's not there. Uh, she wouldn't have known about that. She wouldn't have known about uh, Ernest Hemingway, the towering figure of American letters. That's not there. He's a young journalist, uh, younger than she is at the time. And, uh, you know, he has a, he's a fire, a kind of a fire in his belly. And, and you, she, she and the other people around her can sense that great things are ahead. But 
you know, we've all met people where we've yeah. sensed great things are ahead and nothing's really happened. So, yeah. and so I was, I, my, I was very concerned that I had to portray these people as they would have been seen at the time and not through a later lens. And I'll have to leave it to the reader to decide whether I've, I've done so well enough. Uh, but I certainly, that was my intention yeah, all along. So I relied upon, uh, for, for descriptions of, of uh, the Lost Generation characters, uh, contemporary accounts of what they were like, how they behave, what they were doing, um, and, you know, letters um, and... Uh, uh, just also, you know, there's been some very fine biographies written, but just to get a sense of, of where they were before uh, fame uh, eclipsed the, the the very typical people they were. Now, another interesting thing to me in this book is, um, well, I mean, I'm always interested in the quotations that mm-hmm. authors use. And yeah. you break the book into three sections, yeah. and there's a quote before each section. Yeah. And I want to ask you to read the quote and then tell me why you selected it. Oh, please. absolutely. Thank you. So at the beginning of the book, at the beginning of part one, I have a quote by uh, Paul Valéry, who is a great um, a French writer and poet, and who died actually just around the time, he was very he was quite elderly, and he died around the time that the events in the book take place. Um, and so this quote is, the best way to make your dreams come true is to wake up. And that, to me, exemplified, uh, it's it's just the perfect description of what Helena needs to do to her life. Yeah. Uh, she has these dreams. She's never acted on them. And this is the moment for her to wake up and to go forward. And even if she ultimately fails at becoming an artist, she can always say that she tried. And in some ways, I feel that's a reflection of what I did myself when I first started trying to write. I wanted to do it for years, and I I could never quite work up the courage. And then I had a moment where I realized it was now or never. And the next day I picked up a notebook and I started writing down notes. And it's it's really as simple as that in some ways in terms of getting started. You have to, ultimately, you have to make the decision to do it. And it's it's all about waking up. Um, For the second part of the book, I used a quote um, by Ernest Hemingway uh, from The Sun Also Rises, which is one of my favorite, favorite books ever. I remember still how astonished I was when I read it for the first time as a teenager. And he says, Don't you ever get the feeling that all your life is going by and you're not taking advantage of it? Do you realize you've lived nearly half the time you have to live already? Uh, again, this speaks to to Helena and her struggles to become the person she feels uh, that she's searching to become. But it also applies to the character of Sam, uh, who is also um, not living the life that he wants. Right, right. Uh, in some ways is in France because he's hiding. I won't say too much more on that. And he also uh, is, you know, confronting the fact that he's, he's you know, he's not middle-aged, but certainly he's lived a good chunk of his life already, and he's not living it as he wants to. And, you know, making your dreams come true does not necessarily mean, uh, you know, selling up, buying a boat and and yachting around the world or climbing Mount Everest. It can be small decisions that you make that propel you to something tremendous. And it's those tiny decisions uh, and that, that really, you know, create change in your life. And that's I think a theme in Moonlight Over Paris that you know, not everyone has to be Shakespeare. Yeah. Not everyone has to climb Mount Everest. But attempting to make a change for yourself, attempting to 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 create or or to accomplish uh, whatever you set out to do, it's the attempt that actually right. I find really fascinating. Uh, 
Um, and then the final part of the book, part three, it's a quote from uh, Rainer Maria Rilke uh, from Letters to a Young Poet. Um, and uh, Sam and Helena exchange poetry over the course of the book, and um, Rilke's poems are ones that, that he gives to her. And this is one of my favorite, favorite quotes. Love consists in this, that two solitudes protect and touch and greet each other. Um, and that, to me, summed up, that sums up the relationships you know, whenever you see a successful relationship yep. between two people, that that is, is a wonderful way to describe it, um, and that is what you know. I I'm, I wanted uh, Helena to achieve in her life to find someone that loved her enough to uh, protect, but allow her to to allow her her own yeah. space and yeah. to give her that independence. And it's a rare man in that time who who could do that. And I I feel that she ended up with. That rare man, um, uh, because really, my books there. Yes, they, there's romance in all of my books, but uh, fundamentally, they're about women becoming strong, uh, women starting a place where, uh, certainly by our estimation today, they're weak. Um, and no one wants to read about somebody who, at the start of the book, is weak, and at the end of the book, is equally right. weak. I want to find uh, a way to, to, for my heroines to, to, to travel, you know, an interesting path, and at the end of that journey to be strong. And it's not strength that she, they acquire because someone else gave it to them. It's strength they acquire on their own. Um, so, and, you know, you will never read a story by me in which the billionaire sweeps in yeah. and does everything for one of my heroines. Those can be a lot of fun to read, but that isn't going to be a book that I write. Uh, I'm interested in my heroines, uh, and it does it, in small, small ways, but small but measurable ways, um, living the lives that they truly want. Well, and thank you for that, because it's a very enjoyable read, and I appreciate it. Congratulations. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents, and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.